As we record this episode of the podcast, having just returned from a weekend on the road stateside, first and foremost, it almost felt normal making a trip south of the border. But second of all, I need to know the answer to something. And the something I need to know the answer to is this. What is it about the United States of America that makes them so bad at coffee? I, you, I'm sorry, but you cannot find a good cup of coffee to save your life south of the 49th. And I don't understand it. I, I'm with you. The only good coffee down there is Starbucks. Yeah. And I, I, it just blows my mind how bad coffee is in the States. I don't know why. They do so many things right. They do a lot of things wrong. And one of those things is coffee. It's not very good. I, you know, like even Erie, where we were for the weekend, they do a great job. Shout out to our buddy, Sean Bednard, who runs communications and does play-by-play for the Erie Otters, makes sure the media room is all taken care of. They've got a great media area. They bring in Tim Horton's coffee. And I'm, I'm sorry, but it unless it's just me or unless I'm just extra tired because we've been on the road all weekend, but even the Tim Horton's coffee tastes different there than it does here. I just, I don't get it, but God bless America. Could you please make a better cup of coffee, please? Because we're going to come back sometime and we want better coffee. It's interesting. I think we talked about the Tim Hortons coffee being different. I stopped, I don't mind saying I drove home myself and I was taking some weird way. I don't know what time or which way I was taking, Um, but I was on some back road going through some small towns and I was like, I'm starving. I haven't eaten since like one o'clock. It's eight o'clock right now. And uh, saw saw McDonald's. I thought, whatever, I'll take it. I'm in the States, might as well eat McDonald's. And I got a, excuse me, a Sprite and it was completely different than any other Sprite I've ever tasted in my life. It was absolute trash. It was sugar water. I have no idea why it was different. It's Sprite. Don't they just ship it up to Canada? Isn't it the exact same? You know, anyway. you know what that reminds me of? Be careful. Because when I do the fast food thing, I almost always now default to iced tea. I don't drink pop anymore. Uh, I haven't for a long, long time. But anyway, just be careful if you're ever in the States. You probably know this. Iced tea in the States, generally speaking, is just cold tea cold you need tea, yeah. sweet tea if you want what our nest tea stuff is up here like basically i'm drinking sugar tea but anyway get sweet tea in the states don't just get nice tea you probably know all this stuff we're just finding a reason to complain about our weekend well i want to talk to jack sean and joey our broadcast radio broadcast partners down in the states just when they come up here if they have a sprite or a coffee do they think <laughs> canada sucks <laughs> like are they used to, maybe it's just the you know your taste buds are used to one thing or another but while we were down in here i just got to say the, the people around that organization are awesome. I love going to Erie. I, I know Don famously said, if you want to know what forever feels like, take the drive home after a game in Erie on a Sunday night. <laughs> and I was thinking about that when I crossed the border and I get into like Fort Erie, Canada. And I'm like, I feel like I have been driving for six hours and I still have basically two hours to go. What is going on? Like, how, how does the time just keep rolling off and I'm not home yet? Um, but the guys down there, I pulled in, when I went down for the Saturday game, I tried to park in the parking garage, which is right next to the arena, which is where I parked before a couple of years ago when we went down for New Year's Eve. And uh, the guy said, no, it doesn't open until like quarter after. Well, I have, I want to be in the rink for five to do my pregame interviews. And I'm like, well, I don't really have that luxury to wait. <laughs> and he's like, well, you can park in the, <laughs> this police officer comes over. He goes, what are you looking for, sir? I said, I'm looking for parking. 
I'm a broadcaster. And he goes, well, you can park in this lot right on the other side of this building here. It's free, but make sure to take all your valuables. People walk that parking lot and break windows to steal stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm probably not going to park there then, man. (laughs) You're the officer. You're a block and a half away. Maybe you should be doing something about it. Yeah, maybe you should patrol the parking lot that the (laughs) thieves are apparently patrolling. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) instead of telling some poor Canadian to go park there. Um, anyway, I found a good, I parked in the actual, uh, right across from the bus entrance, which is like the Erie Otters players parking and staff parking and stuff. And it says like authorized parking only unauthorized vehicles will be towed, but I need to get in the rink. I'm like, if I just park there for 10 minutes and then I can move it. Sure. But I parked there and I walked across and the guy who's guarding the door to the arena on the backside, I just talked, I said, Hey, told him who I was and said, do you mind if I park over there? He goes, don't worry about it. I'll look after you. He said, if you come back tomorrow and you want to park there again, I'll be sitting in the white vehicle. If you need anything, just come find me. So he saw me walking over. He came out of his vehicle to come and talk to me. We got chatting. He used to, he, he was 57, I think 59. He retired at 55 from the jail and he's running security now with the otters, but just a really nice guy made sure to, you know, wish me good luck moving forward as I was leaving on Sunday afternoon. Their equipment guy helped me out over the moon to get players out of their dressing room for pregame interviews and made sure I had someone just a great, great people around that organization. So that explains why general manager and president of hockey operations, Dave Brown was complaining that some schmuck took his parking spot. I'll make sure I know who it was. Uh, No. And and on the trip, why it feels like forever. I'm sure it's the barrier of the border. There's just something about it, no matter how smooth it is getting across. There's just something about crossing that border. I think that makes it feel worse, but on your point, and I make no mistake, I'm, I'm not here to be uh, a publicity arm for the Ontario hockey league, but you talk about the great people around that organization in Erie. And I was feeling the same on the Sunday. Cause we were down there uh, for back-to-back games over the weekend. And I remember just, getting up and getting into the rhythm of getting to the rink and, you know, it's a game day and we're doing our routines and all of that stuff. And I remember walking in and thinking like, this is the coolest thing. I wish this could be a full-time job instead of essentially a side hustle. Cause you don't make, you don't make a living in the Ontario hockey league. You work in it because you love the game and it's a pretty high level to be covering the game at, but I, I would add for the other 19 teams, honestly, Chris, I know we haven't been to all of the markets this year because of the schedule, but it doesn't matter where you go. We are we are surrounded by really good people, great colleagues on the media side, great arena staff. I when I was going into uh, London earlier, and we were still doing uh, vaccine passports, and the the QR code I had didn't scan, and she's like, "Well, here, go to this website, and download a new one, and we'll make it work." And she walks me through everything, and it, she was friendly. And I, I just think we're lucky around around this league all 19 markets that we visit and i hope visitors get the same experience from uh the folks in kitchener but anyway it's a it's a great league to be a part of and and as we stick with erie uh what a treat it was to be down there to celebrate their uh, 25th silver anniversary over the weekend great chrome buckets on the otters for the two well, games i don't know i love them i, I love them the i didn't love them no i love no. the helmets look like blades of steel la kings <laughs> Um, but I, I wasn't a big fan of the silver jerseys. I liked the look of them. They were just hard to pick up numbers, sure. at least off the sleeves, the backs, they pop, but, um, I just think, <laughs> well, someone with the Rangers organization even said to me after the game. So those otters certainly had some players, eh? Cause they put up video messages of all these former otters, <laughs> the names that are popping off. And I, I look, we talked about it on air. I took a look. Kitchener has two 50 win seasons. In their history, the Otters did it four times in a row. That is crazy town. 
CHL record, obviously. Um, but just the names that were popping up, and I thought they did a great job in bringing back some of the older guys um, from their early years to commemorate them uh, with the ceremony for the 25th anniversary. But they also brought back a couple guys from the last two years uh, to represent the overagers that didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And one of those guys was Jack Duff, former captain, and he made a speech to the Otters fans and stuff. I just thought it was a perfect way to do it and a perfect time to take time to honor the guys that didn't get to say goodbye from their OA season, obviously the canceled season, and then the shortened one before just to bring them back. And it was a perfect time to do so with the 25th anniversary. I thought it was a great ceremony. It's funny. You talk about those four fifty win seasons and it's a 25 year franchise and Kitchener being around a lot longer with just the two fifty win seasons and not back to back, but it was also brought up to me, Oh, look at the championships, two OHL championships, no Memorial Cups, but two OHL championships again in 25 years. And it was brought up to me by way of comparison to the Kitchener Rangers. Look, I get it because it's been a while in Kitchener. But if you look at the history, the team beginning in 1963 had its first two OHL championships inside 20 years, not 25. Now, again, there's a a pride and a tradition, and I know the fans in Kitchener are are getting restless. That that's abundantly clear. But there have been four OHL championships over the history. And again, if you want to just compare chunks of time, two and twenty-five years for the Erie Otters, there were two in less than twenty when the Kitchener Rangers got started. And I just think, I guess that early, if you want to call it that, then success builds the appetite for greater success down the road. And look, there have been some great players to come through the Kitchener organization and and so many others, but it was a lot of fun watching Erie celebrate uh, the way that it did on the weekend. It was kind of cool to be a part of and and reminisce ourselves about the players that we've seen come through this league from that organization, how Connor McDavid never won uh, even the team scoring race when he was a member of the Erie Otters. It's just, it's wild when you think about it. It is. And excuse me, every, uh, every team has that history in championships and well, most teams have championships and so on and so forth. But I just think four fifty win seasons, like you're never going to see it. In a row. You can't, I you know can't compare it's, it's crazy. Um, I just want to give a, I know I talked about it on the broadcast, but uh, Emmett, they had a kid's day, kids takeover day on the Sunday afternoon. And there was like kids announcing the starting lineups. There was even the mascot even had a baby otter with him. It was awesome. They did a great job, but this Emmett kid, comes out for the first intermission and I believe it might have, I believe it was his dad and I may have just been assuming, but I believe it was his father who does the normal PA work in between intermissions, brought him out and they had two Timbits games going on in each end zone. And they gave Emmett a mic and just said, tell us what's going on in that game. And he started comment- commentating like he was a pro and then gets on the mic and starts going, let's make some noise fans. This kid was like five. Maybe he was, he was putting the mic up in the air, swinging it around. He was the highlight of the intermissions. The entire press row was laughing so hard at just how funny this kid was. So little Emmett, great job in Erie this weekend. I'd say he was the uh, highlight of the entire game for a Kitchener yeah. Rangers fan. Cause it was a rough one on that Sunday for the Rangers when the Otters beat them uh, six to two, moving on to another part of the league. Uh, it was recognized. I still find it, I find it curious. I'm not going to get conspiratorial on you here, but I don't know. I don't know why they didn't just wait another hundred games to take nothing away from the accomplishment. I just find it an odd milestone to celebrate, but nonetheless, it was celebrated. And he's one of the best damn guys in this game. Jimmy Gilchrist, uh, the longtime voice of the Kingston Frontenacs and the guy that takes care of 
everything when you visit Kingston. An absolute beauty. 2,900 games called in the Ontario Hockey League, and the France recognized him for that this past weekend. Awesome stuff. I might get conspiratory on you. Well, why did they wait till 3,000? That's what I'm wondering. Uh, I'm hoping it's no. not for the reason I think. And, Jimmy, I hope it's not for the reason I think. You got plenty of games left, my friend. This league is better with you in it. Please don't leave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He's a, he's an absolute beauty and synonymous with that organization. 100%. As, as, like, Mav won, Gilkey too. You know, yeah. like, he's been there forever. He's called so many, well, 2,900 games. And that, that's a massive number. And I think when you get to that point, maybe you do just celebrate every 100, considering there's only 68 games in a in a season. You don't know when he's going to eventually hang up the headset so do you want to wait another year and a half before you recognize him or do you want to take the chance to do it while he's still there and I I just you think of the names that have went through Kingston and the lack of playoff success they've had up there they've always had Jimmy Gilchrist so stick tap to Jimmy for doing 2900 and hopefully there's come on you got to catch Don (laughs) well you brought that up and by the way I just texted Jimmy just to to plant the seed there i said i can't wait for the three thousand celebration so if he gets back before we're done recording here today then we'll know what's going on but we talked about that while we were away and you're like okay hang on 2900 games and he's been in it for how many years 40 so and don did how many but when you start doing the math it's true like don did about another 15 years beyond 40 he was 55 years don cameron associated with and calling games for the Kitchener Rangers and went a shade over 4,000 games. So you take 2,900 over 40 years and you take about half that and add it up. Like that, that's the way the math works. So if Jimmy's got another 15 years in him, he might just catch the number put up by one Mr. Don Cameron. It's crazy. Like when we were talking about that, it's, it's crazy to think because like, you know, I've been doing this. I think this is our fourth season, fifth year with the canceled year it's mathematically impossible for me to catch Don. <laughs> like he did it for so long. Well, I'm not doing was, games when I'm 85. I, I get it. Well, I was going to say, it's not mathematically impossible because that's the other thing. Don did do it up until his 79th year. Well, that's what I mean. Right? I started so, when I was 30, started the radio side when I was 31, Yeah, 55 years. I'm not doing it when I'm 86. I get you. I'm going to be in a home chasing around some cute nurse rolling around in my wheelchair. Get over here. You know, I'm not going to be going and he moves it down to the left side. No, not for me, but I just, it just goes to show that, you know, a guy like Jimmy Gilchrist has been around for so long. It just puts it into perspective with Don did. I don't overshadow what Jimmy did, but you, I think in Kitchener, you tend to just forget that. Oh yeah, it was Don. He did the games for a while. Yeah. You know, especially when you know him, it's like, Oh, then it's just Don or Mr. Cameron. But then you look at 55 years. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's it's staggering when you start trying to break it down. Jimmy has always extended the invitation to come up Kingston Way in the summer. I I don't know about you, but I love visiting there on the circuit. uh, And getting to see Jimmy is just a bonus while you're there. He says, come on up in the summertime. You never see it in the summertime. We'll have a drink together. I'm like, you know what, Jimmy, we will. So maybe now if your conspiracy is in any way remotely true, now would be the time to catch him in the summertime. Absolutely. Go up to Kingston in the summer. You don't have to twist my arm too hard. That's for sure. Got Sir Gordon right behind me. Got a boy. We are uh, we are getting awfully close to that time of the season. Uh, I believe 
Uh, the Saginaw Spirit have been mathematically eliminated in the Western Conference and playoff positions are being secured across the board on both sides. It's going to be a wild finish in the West, given the weekend that both the Otters and Rangers had for different reasons, right? The Otters very much keep themselves in the conversation and the Kitchener Rangers, while they're still in control of their own destiny, certainly made their lives a little more difficult with six games to go in the season. They did. It's going to be fun down the stretch. That's for sure. At least in the Western conference with three teams vying for two playoff spots. I just took a look at the standings on the league website. I didn't know if they would put like a, yeah, I don't think they put the mark there that for they don't eliminate yeah. it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, nothing there right now, but I I didn't run the math. I just want to give a quick shout out to the OHL because we tend to be critical of their tweets sometimes and just how they relay suspensions and so on and so forth. And we've talked before just about how we like how teams like, I'm just going to use Oshawa because they're the best at it. Sorry to the other 19 teams, but uh, just the social media presence and, you know, having fun with it as opposed to just treating it like, it's another way to get people to click to go to your website type of thing. Oshawa has a lot of fun with it. And on April Fool's, the OHL had some fun with it. And I thought it was a fantastic tweet. Did they say that the Cornwall Royals are coming back? Because I want the Cornwall Royals to come back. They did not. Oh. So you'll have to wait on that. Okay. Um, but the, tw- the tweet was just a typical tweet that they send out that you wouldn't even look twice at. At least I wouldn't. And they basically just said the uh, the France, Sting, Wolves, Generals, and Ice Dogs were all victorious to close out the month of March on Thursday. Recap, and then with the link, and had pictures of a uh, player from each of those teams. Oh, I but did see the, that tweet. Yeah, but those were the teams that lost. <laughs> they said they all ended the, the month off with a win, and every one of those teams was defeated the night before. So you click the link, and it just goes on. to It's basically just a recap of the games, but every tweet, they, every team they mentioned in their tweet lost and didn't win. So the replies from the OHL clubs are absolutely hilarious. Like Oshawa was one of those teams that lost, but the tweet said that they were all victorious. So Oshawa replies, not cool. (laughs) (laughs) And Sudbury says, so how do, how do we go about getting those two points to come with this victory? (laughs) Oshawa replies, please relax. (laughs) It's just, it was, if you, if you want a good chuckle, cause the teams had some fun with it. I thought it was a, a very small way for an April fool's joke, but it was a, I don't know if they intended it to be that funny. I thought it was absolutely hilarious and clearly the teams did too. Okay. It's funny. Cause you, you mentioned to me as we were getting started to record today, Hey, did you see the league's April fool's tweet? I'm like, no, I didn't. I felt kind of bad. Cause I, I try to stay up on things like that. And certainly when we're in, game mode we're keeping track of all the social media things and we were we were playing all weekend the first the second and the third so now the way you describe it i did see that tweet i didn't think anything of it quite frankly so me either i saw the oshawa general's response and i'm like oh did they say something and i thought oh maybe the ohl like upset oshawa i want to see what they wrote and then i look i'm like they lost but they said they and then it clicks. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is genius. Not bad. Such a, such a good tweet. The, the best response was from Windsor. Um, and it was actually to Sarnia because Sarnia lost to Windsor. Um, and Sarnia just sent a response and just said, that's just rude. And Windsor response, two L's in less than 24 hours. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> to your point though, that, earlier. I love that stuff. And it is like there are a lot of teams that are doing a really, really good job 
with their social media. I mentioned this to you over the course of the past week because we had Bill Bowler on this podcast last week. And no sooner did we post the links to the podcast, both uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, our OHL Stories Facebook page, by the way, jump on board and start following if you're not already. But then the Windsor Spitfires were sharing it out into their network as well. And, and they didn't get tagged on the, on the Facebook post. So whoever's doing that stuff is really keeping an eye on it. And I, I'm sure there's, a, there's an idea behind it that, hey, that's where our younger demographic is hanging out, as I say, as the old guy who's still on Facebook. I, you know, but that notwithstanding, I think a lot of these teams are taking pretty seriously what can happen and what can be accomplished on social media. And I, I think that's a really, really good sign for the league. Absolutely. Um, real quick, before we get to our guest, Mike, if I saw someone breaking into a car in my neighborhood, what should I do? Uh, you know what you should do, Chris, is you should call Crime Stoppers. 1-800-222-TIPS or waterloocrimestoppers.com because they are the proud sponsors of this podcast. And here's the beauty of you making that call. It is anonymous. When you make the call to Crime Stoppers, you are kept anonymous and they will pay up to $2,000 for tips that lead to an arrest in a case. So it's really important to just drive home the fact that you get to remain anonymous, that you can collect a cash prize, and you are staying engaged in what's happening in your community. So as you stare out your window right now, Chris, as we're recording this, and you see that car being broken into, we'll uh, introduce our guest, and you can call Crime Stoppers in Waterloo Region. Earn yourself a cash reward, and hey, help out the community. Well done, sir. Three years as a member of the Sudbury Wolves in this league, tending the twine up north before getting shipped down to the Erie otters yes this is a very otter centric podcast and it was in his year and a half with the Erie otters where he won an OHL championship and went to the Memorial Cup yes he was part of one of the seasons of the 450 win seasons in a row ladies and gentlemen our guest this episode for Waterloo Crime Stoppers Troy Timpano I have to start with the position Troy because I always find it fascinating not just with the pressure but with somebody who decides, you know what I think I want to do for my life is stand in front of frozen rubber. Why a goalie? Yeah, you got to be crazy, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, my story is kind of funny. And uh, when I was kind of starting out in hockey, uh, you know, house league, they, they pass around the equipment, right? And uh, it, was, it was something that my dad kind of never really wanted me to do. You know, he always said, don't put your hand up. And there was one day that... He was bending over, uh, untying my skates, and they were asking. And he wasn't paying attention. I threw my hand up, and the rest is history. I I went in, really enjoyed it. Uh, I think, actually, I ended up getting a a shutout my my first game, and it was kind of like a destined uh, position for me. Uh, They had parents uh, contacting uh, my parents, saying he should try out for the next level. And that's kind of how it started. And, uh, you know, I I guess really the first time I I thought, you know, I could probably – probably stick to doing this was maybe when I was eight, nine years old and uh, Ajax Cricketing Raiders was the team that I, that I initially grew up, uh, grew up on for a couple of years. So yeah, you know, the, the position is uh, it's unique to say the least, but uh, I had my fun while I lasted at least. What, a, what kind of mindset do you need? If you're, if you're talking to a young goalie today, cause I, I mean, just from the broadcast booth looking down, it's like, you got to forget the last goal every single yeah. time, but, Sometimes you get scored on three, four, five times a game. What kind of mindset do you need? 
uh, a quick uh, one that kind of race pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's a position that if I were to tell a younger kid, I'd say, you know what, you go out there, you have fun and just you work hard and don't give up on the play. Well, kind of a, it's one of those kind of unique positions, right. Where, you know, it's, it's really what you put into it and you can't have any fear going into it as well. You see goalies a lot of time if they're, if they're scared, they're puck shy, it's, it's not for them. So, I mean, yeah, for, for a younger goalie like myself, when I started out, um, it was kind of just my, my dad always told me he's more proud of how hard I work in practice than anything else. And that's kind of the mentality that I had moving forward through my career. If you started out there in Ajax Pickering playing goal and playing hockey, obviously as an Ajax boy, uh, did you ever cross paths with David Branch before you were in the Ontario Hockey League? No, actually, uh, no. First time I would have met uh, David Branch, uh, I was invited. It would have been after I was drafted. I was invited to a, uh, a goalie, a Hockey Canada goalie symposium. And it was really a discussion where uh, Jordan Binnington was actually on the panel as well with me. And it was a kind of a discussion of the development of, uh, of goaltending uh, and why at the time, especially and continuing the Finnish, the Finnish goaltenders were, you know, dominant and they were kind of, assessing the uh the up-and-coming development of hockey canada goaltending and so that was actually the first time i got the honor to meet him speaking of a goaltending symposium and a guy like jordan bennington when you decided that this was going to be your position troy was there a goaltender you looked up to tried to model your game after i wouldn't say model my game after him but martin broder was uh was always was always my guy you know and uh whether it was just, I always liked the Devils growing up as well. You know, I'm, I'm a Leafs fan at heart, but growing up, uh, watching Martin Brodeur was was special to me. I was number 30 for the longest time up until my OHL draft year, where I switched to number 33 because of my father. So I, that was a guy that uh, that I I wouldn't model my game after because it's very hard to do with his with the way he played. But uh, yeah, he was a role model to me for sure. What's the connection to 33 and your dad? He, uh, he was just a number that he wore his entire life. Didn't matter what sport it was. And uh, it, it was, I, as soon as I, I wanted something that had a little bit more meaning and to, to make that connection with, with my dad, it's, it's been something that's now a part of our family. You know, I have a tattoo of it. He has a tattoo of it. And, you know, we, it's just something that's kind of now uh, kind of embedded in us. So yeah, it's, it's always, it's always been that way now with, uh, with that number. We've been talking for maybe five minutes already twice. Your father has come up in reference to you and hockey. Tell me about your parents and, and what they meant to the development of you as a hockey player. Oh, where do I begin? Uh, <laughs> I owe them everything. Uh, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't know where I was right now. They sacrificed more than I can imagine to to put me through hockey and and be there at every game and, and practice, you know, uh, and even my my sister too she had to give up a lot because you know my parents were so dedicated to you know helping me achieve what I what I could so uh, um, kind of growing up they were there every step of the way uh, the highs and the lows and yeah, they played a huge part in, in the, the success that I had I have to take just a half step back because when you mentioned being a Leafs fan you're talking to a fellow Leafs fan here and even more so now um, because you're a goalie how do you feel as a fan watching this team? And of course, hearing like the criticisms or the, the talk for the last month has been off. Oh, they don't find goaltending, they're in trouble. 
Yeah, it seems like it's kind of the story with the Leafs over the last bit, right? Uh, goaltending has always been a hot topic with the Leafs. Uh, and as a goaltender, I understand the pressure that, that is on them, especially in the market that the Leafs are in. It's not easy. And I feel, I do feel for them because, you know, they don't, they don't have it easy. And any mistake they make, any, anything that really happens, it usually comes back to the goaltending. So I hope, uh, you know, moving forward with uh, it's Calgrin, right? Am I pronouncing that right? Calgrin? Yep. Calgrin, Campbell, and, and even Mrazic. Like at the end of the day, it's it's not an easy market to be in. And so for them to just, uh, you know, go out there and be able to, you know, stop the puck, it's kudos to them. When you get to the Ontario Hockey League, it's the Sudbury Wolves who, I, I want to say call your name because that's such the cliche, but of course it gets posted on a computer, right? The Sudbury Wolves are going to take Troy Tempano. It shows up on your computer screen and there you go. What would you think when uh, Sudbury picked you? You know, it was, it was crazy. I, initially, you know, I was, it was just, you know, you're filled with excitement. Uh, I didn't honestly know too much about the city. Uh, I met with um, uh, with uh, Blaine. It was Blaine at the time. Uh, I met with him during their playoffs. And he kind of, uh, it was prior to the draft, and he, he was, you know, kind of giving me a little bit of a background on Sudbury. And, you know, so I, I, that's pretty much all I really knew. Uh, when I was drafted and then I, I got to go to the orientation, I got to see the city myself. I got to watch a game. Uh, that was when I really sunk in and saying, this is, you know, this almost reminds me of like a smaller Toronto, you know, in terms of how the fans treat the team and kind of that's all they got. Right. So the Sudbury Wolves were like a, like a mini Toronto. And I got to see that firsthand in the, in the playoffs and it just filled me with excitement. I couldn't wait to kind of get started. And the ride home was interesting. My mom was bawling her eyes out because it was four hours away. But uh, I ensured her that, it, you know, I come visit whenever you want. And sure enough, they did. So, Tell me about being in Sudbury, because it's still honestly one of my favorite barns to go to because it's got character, right? It's that old building, the wooden slats on the ceiling, the, some great history in there. And of course, that raggedy old wolf on the wire. But what's it like being a member of that organization? It's cool, you know. Uh, I, I I was there when I, I was late birthday, so 15. I was there for when I was 15 years old. So for three years, you know, it's you're really you're spending some key teen years kind of growing and developing. The city, the 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 barn, the organization as a whole, they they're they're class they're very world class. And um, especially the guys when I was there, there was uh, Nick Baptiste, you know, Nathan Pansel, and we got Trevor Carrick at, at one point, Radic Faxa. So we had uh, a lot of good talent as well. And being a younger guy, being able to soak that all in, even with uh, Palaziz as my, as an overrager goaltender, kind of as a mentor, you know, I was without that as my, uh, as starting off in my career, it really did help my development. And uh, yeah, you know, honestly, the Subway Wolves, the history in that barn is, is phenomenal. I've, I've always loved it. We had some issues. <laughs> we had some issues at point. We, uh, I remember my, it was our, it was my first year, the home opener against the Sioux Greyhounds. We got fogged out. The, I the remember that. Filled, the, yeah, the rink filled up with fog, and we could, you couldn't see anything. I remember there was even a play, and their guys were trying to shoot it from the other end because the goalie couldn't see. So they actually ended to call the game. They called the game, and uh, they had to reschedule it. Uh, there was another incident where uh, one of the guys at the rink drilled too much into the ice and punctured a pipe. So the whole ice started to flood at the one end. 
So we've had our, we've had our experiences, but the barn itself, you, you know what? A lot of history, a lot of history that I loved it. You talk about some of that talent you had with you there in Sudbury. You had a lot of talent towards the end of your career, True, We'll get to that because there's some big names on some other team that you might have been a part of. But still with Sudbury, I talked to actually one of your former coaches earlier today, Paul Fixter. And he remembers you as being one of three players who attended his introductory press conference in Sudbury. What do you remember of Fixie? Yeah, that was – so it would have probably been – Myself, Kappa Bianco, and Stefan LeBlanc. And, exactly uh, who he said it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, memory, right? Surprised all the pucks have taken off my head. But yeah. So, you know what? First time meeting him, it was, uh, I was used to that kind of dynamic in a coach uh, with my minor, my minor league coach. Uh, you know, kind of hard nose, right to the point, and, you know, kind of no, no, no BS. And I kind of, I look forward to that. I look forward to that because I, you, you know, you're going up to another level, you want that full experience. You want it to be, um, yes, enjoyable, but you also want a coach that cares and it will take a team. And my first initial, uh, I guess, time meeting him. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was good. And I, hopefully he felt the same way, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I liked, I liked, uh, fixture as a, as a coach. Uh, I think I, he was there for, a, I think a year and a half or, or so, when I, uh, when I was there. So it wasn't a long, overly long time, but um, no, I, I had a good relationship with him. You met a young kid while you were in Sudbury too, that you maintained a relationship with even after uh, you left the Wolves organization. Tell us about Wyatt. Yeah. Wyatt Summers. He, uh, so I met Wyatt when uh, we were doing a bowling event. Uh, it was called bowling with the wolves. And uh right away he kind of drew to me and, and, you know, I, I was just, you know, being a 16 year old role model as best as I could. And, and kind of took him under my wing and uh, we had fun. It was, it was a good event. And then afterwards uh, I guess my parents saw him at our games. He had our Jersey. I had my Jersey and uh, uh, kind of from that point, he was really the first fan I'd say that, really drew to me. And so when I saw that and I, and I ended up speaking with his parents and whatnot, uh, Wyatt, uh, he has autism. And uh, so it was, it was something where I wanted to help them out and kind of form this relationship with them as best as I could. And to this day, you know, I was talking to him actually uh, a couple of days ago and he's excelling in school. He's doing really well. And it's, it's nice to kind of have that. And you don't really know how much you really can affect someone's life until, you know, you really, all 10 years goes by and you still have this connection and and the relationship means it's a mutual relationship. That's just so beneficial. So it was really nice getting to know him and his family. What was it like going back to see him when you were no longer a Sudbury Wolf, when you're playing for the Otters, but you would see him on the road? Yeah. I I remember I got him a Jersey and an Otters Jersey right away. So, uh, so you could start wearing that. And I think he actually wore it to a few Sudbury games when we weren't even playing. He wasn't playing. So it was kind of funny, but uh, you know, he supported me all along the way. You know, he was, he was always a Timpano fan and a Sudbury fan. So it was kind of nice to to always have that support. And, you know, it was definitely different being on the other side of things when it wasn't Sudbury uh, playing with Erie. So, but you know, and again, the support from him and his family to this day, even when I'm not playing now with my business, it's just been, it's just been awesome. Is he a Ryerson Rams fan now too? He was, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he is. Yeah. I'm sure he is. <laughs> you said something 
Troy, that, that kind of struck me, You're trying to be the best 16-year-old role model that, that you could be. I think about this from time to time because you guys as players in the Ontario Hockey League are asked to do an awful lot. Obviously, job number one for you when you come into the league is development and, and moving on to a hopefully pro career. But so much is asked of you in the community where you're playing. In all honesty, do you ever just roll your eyes and say, oh, my God, another another reading at a school, another bowling event, things like that? You know what? I honestly, that was one thing about the OHL that I absolutely loved. I loved the community work we got to do. And I got to meet, like Wyatt, some incredible people along the way. And without that, you know, you don't, you look back. And again, like I said, you don't realize the lives you touched. I posted a video and someone responded saying that I have your autograph. You have a picture with my mother. You visited her in the hospital. And I'm, and I'm sitting there like, that's, that's awesome. And I'm happy that I was able to experience that and do that. Um, and and the, the amount of people I, I met along the way was, is something that, you know, you don't forget. So I, I always loved it. It was never something that I felt was um, taking up my time or, or, or a burden. I always, I, I recommend, I always offered to do it. And, and I was really fortunate that it was probably my second or third year in Sudbury where I had more time because of my age and school uh, on my side was was uh, wasn't as as uh, time consuming, so I was able to do more. And as soon as I was able to do more, I just you know I was looking for every opportunity. You mentioned getting to Sudbury when you're 15 years old still, and then by the time you're 18, you're on the move not only out of Sudbury and to a new city, but really to a new country when the Erie Otters trade for you. What, how did you find out you were traded? So I was actually uh, in the middle of uh, goaltending, excuse me, goaltending camp uh, with Piero Greco. And uh, I heard from my agent before I was, I was on my way there that there could be potential in a trade. Um, funny enough, I was actually on the ice with Jake Lauer, who was the goalie in Erie at the time. I didn't mention anything. It was just, you know, it was just talk. But it wasn't until I got off the ice and I was on my way home and then I got a call from my agent saying it's it's done. And I had a no trade and they asked me if I wanted to waive it. And I said, let's uh, let's pack my bags. I'm I'm ready for a new uh, new opportunity. You know, Sudbury gave me everything and helped me a lot. And I was just, you know, I was ready for the next chapter. Uh, I can't let that name slide by without having a further conversation because Grex spent some time as the goaltending coach in Kitchener. Yeah. Truth here now, Troy. Have you ever heard anybody use the F word more than Piero Greco? <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, I actually. Yeah, well, okay, yes. fair, fair. <laughs> no, Piero, Piero's, uh, he was, he was always a unique guy. He had a sense of humor and uh, he is, he played a huge part in, in, in my career. Like realistically, when I look back, I joined uh, the GTHL, in minor Adam or Adam, I want to say. And uh, I was played for the Mississauga reps. That was my first time in the GTHL. And uh, that's when I met Piero Greco. So I met him in, in Adam. And from him, or from that time on, he was my, he was the guy that I went to. He was the guy that I went to. And um, yeah, he played, he played a huge part. He completely changed my game. So fortunate yeah, for, to meet him. You know what? I say that in jest and with love because we had some great conversations, Grex and I, over the years, and they were they were salty at times. But that's what we do when we're away from the rink and whatever. But uh, I guess obviously based on your work with him, no surprise at all that he's doing what he's doing now in the National Hockey League. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, his approach to the game and how much he loves it is kind of just speaks volumes. And you can see that when he's working with the guys, you know, if you screw up or you're not doing something right, I'll let you know. Right. And, and it was always funny. And something that I always remember is when they would do these goalie camps and they'd have the nets kind of scattered across the, uh, the ice, he could be at the other end of the rink and you could screw up on the other side and he'll fly down the rink and start yelling and yelling. And it's, you know, I think that's the passion you need. You need someone that cares, you know, just as much as you. So he was, he was awesome. He was a huge influence. You get to Erie and things, as I recall, started uh, pretty damn well shut out in the first game, seven straight wins. If I'm not mistaken, when you started with the Otters. Yeah, it was, I mean, as a goalie or any, like really any position, it's kind of what you hope for when you when you start on a new team I was fortunate enough that yeah we had a uh, phenomenal start you know the guys really bought into at the start we had uh, you know some guys still in NHL camp so we had a lot of younger guys playing like uh, in Ladnia and these guys just they bought in and yeah we went on a, we went on a great run and I can't take all the credit for it because we did have a really strong team but as a goaltender I mean what more can you really ask for? So it was, it was fun. I was fortunate. I was fortunate for it. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a good start. Is there a difference at all in your mind, having played in both conferences between the way the game is played in the Eastern conference of the O and the Western conference? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I played and I'm, I'm sure it might be still the same because I mean, you got some, you got some pretty good teams in the West. Uh, The West to me was always the more difficult conference. Uh, we had, I, I always felt it was more of a tougher, a tougher opponent. Like you'd be playing and it was, I don't know if it was just the way that would, the matchups, the way it was lined up with the teams and who they got and who they drafted at the time. And you know what I mean? All circumstantial, but it was always, it was always more difficult playing a Western team. They were the more hard nosed and they played a more of a tougher game. I felt. We, we talked about that talent earlier in Sudbury, but some of these names, and you mentioned Lodnia as a young kid, but then you've got Debrinkit, you've got Radish, you've got Strom. What were practices like for you? Ecstatic. I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was a challenge every minute on the ice. And honestly, that, again, played into a huge part of my development. I found that there was not a single guy on that team that didn't work hard. And that was so important and playing a huge role in, in our, in our successful year. But uh, it went, it, came, it stemmed honestly, Chris Knobloch as a coach, like that it just stemmed from our coaching staff all the way down. And it was just contagious. You know, you saw Strom working hard, Deb, the Brinkat uh, working on a shot every practice. And it was just, like I said, contagious. And for younger guys coming in, and seeing that, um, you know, they just, they just got off it. So practices were fun. They were very challenging. And, you know, I always loved to stop these guys. That was one of my favorite things. What about in gameplay? Was there a guy who either had your number or that you really took delight in stopping? Honestly, the one guy that I feel like had my number was Marner. He, he, he did bury a few goals on me and I want to say when I was in Sudbury especially like I'll never forget I think it was six nothing after the first period um but I never told my like if my coach if it's six nothing if I was playing bad he kind of had a sense of that and he usually would take me out but there was times where I was just getting peppered with shots and he'd ask me do you want to come out and I would be like leave me in there 
just you may as well leave me yet. I'll 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 take the shots. It's six nothing. A comeback against London might be pretty hard at this point. So just let me get in. Let me let me battle. And uh, you know that's that's kind of the mentality I had, especially in Sudbury. But Marner, Marner, I feel like I always had my number, which is unfortunate. But uh, not just yours, I don't think, Troy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about that dynamic that you just talked about. Cause again, having never been on the ice in that position, how does it usually work between a goaltender and a coach when you're in a position like that? Cause lots of times we just had a, a night uh, in Sarnia where I saw that Benjamin Godreau had been left in for all nine goals against. And typically as broadcasters, we say, well, why would he have been left in for all nine? Is he being embarrassed yeah. or anything like that? What's the dynamic usually like between a goalie and a coach when it comes to it's either time to get the hook out or not. I think there has to be a bit of an understanding. And again, excuse me, the, the team that we had in Sudbury, my second and third year, we were not a, a very strong team. So there'd be nights where we'd be versing a top team. We most likely were not going to win. And I kind of just went in there and saying, I'm just going to do the best I can to stop the next shot. Um, the relationship I had with my coach, my coaches, um, they kind of understood too, you know, depending they, like anything, you could read a game and, you know, you know, a bad goal next to a goal. Maybe I didn't have a chance on. So they gave me the benefit of the doubt most times. Um, and again, depending on the situation of the game, depending on how we were playing, that kind of played into a factor as well. So like I said, there was a number of times where, yeah, I was let, I was left in for a number of goals and I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Like I, I wanted to stay in there. I wanted to battle and I was fortunate enough that I had that relationship and those conversations with my coach saying, if, if I'm in there and we don't really have a chance to win and you see that I'm battling, just let me, let me go. And uh, fortunate enough, you know, that, that unique relationship, uh, you can do that. When you got to Erie, you joined a team that had posted three consecutive 50 win seasons. So the year you joined them, is the chance to establish a new CHL record. Was it discussed at all? Um, at the start of when I was there, I feel like I was told that we, we weren't really sure how the year was going to go. I think actually when I was first traded there, uh, the rumor was we were going to be a mid-pack team. We were going to be a fifth, fifth, sixth, maybe a fourth-place team. And so the mentality was never to set another record. I mean, we were very fortunate to do so. But um, it was never really discussed at the start until I feel like that the start of the season we went on a bit of a run, uh, saw kind of what we were dealing with and the players and, and the foundation we still had and the core group that we still had. And then obviously Chernak came back and then Strom came back. And I feel like the talk be, became more and more. Uh, but again, 50 wins was never really our goal it just kind of played into our, our next step. You know, we always wanted to get to the, the championship, win the championship, Memorial Cup. So in order to do that each night in, night out, we just kind of had to buy into uh, to Chris Knobloch's game plan. And Chris Knobloch's game plan gets you 50 wins. So it works. How, how does it do that? What's Chris Knobloch's game plan? You know, he, he's a, he's a phenomenal coach, you know, and as a goalie, it's, it's a little bit different for me to un- understanding the kind of strategic and the strategy, obviously. Um, but he just ensured that every guy, you know, it's, it's hard as, as a coach, 
to, you need to gain the respect for your players. He had it from, from day one. I'm pretty sure when he got in, I've heard uh, there's stories that I heard about, you know, guys drinking on the bus before he got there. And when he got there, he cut it right out. And that was kind of the, the tipping point, I think, for, for Erie to, to kind of move on and, and, and start plugging away at the, these 50 win seasons. He made it, he made it a big impact, but in terms of gameplay, he was just very smart. He was, he was always a student of the game himself. He never, you know, he would be reviewing tape after and, and I'll, I'll never forget what he was able to do for me. And I actually recently posted about it too, because I came across the video, which I was struggling for a few games in our playoffs. And uh, he pulled me into his room and handed me a USB. And he said, take this home, plug it into your laptop. And I got home, plugged it in. It was a highlight. It was a five minute highlight tape of, uh, of throughout the year of me making obviously uh, some saves just to give me back my confidence kind of. And from that point forward, it kind of really showed that he, he believes in me. He trusts me and he knows that I am what I'm capable of to, to, to kind of lead this team. So it, was, it meant a lot, but that's kind of the dynamic of, of Chris Knobloch and the game plan or the, how you achieve that 50, those, those 50 wins. It stems a lot from the relationship he had with the players, I believe. When, when you're a goaltender on a team that is that talented, a lot of people make references to Grant Fuhrer, of course, in the 1980s with the Edmonton Oilers. And everybody says that Fuhrer was always the best at not letting the next one in. What's your approach, if, if it changes at all, as a goaltender with that much talent in front of you? Yeah, there was, there was some nights where I think I saw seven shots. And coming from Sudbury, where I'd see close to 70, you know, like it, it was, it was something where I wasn't used to at the start, but it really, I, I always, I always uh, pride myself on being very mentally strong. And so for me, I never, um, I never kind of, I guess, allowed myself to get distracted or unfocused. Uh, there, it was tough. I mean, again, yeah, you could go almost a whole period with having maybe one, two shots and then the next shot could be a breakaway. So it was just being, it was just staying ready and, and kind of, you know, keeping uh, a fresh mind as well and, and staying in the game. You don't want to let your mind go, which isn't, it can be tough in those situations, but I was always very attentive to the game. And part of the reason why I believe that, which allowed me to stay really focused was the puck handling. I loved to play the puck. And so anytime the team would be dumping the puck or whatever, if I was very active out of the net, it allowed me to stay in the game. So I think that also played a big part into it. That year uh, that you go on to win the OHL championship, obviously so many uh, great memories from it. And, and we'll get to some of those, especially in that playoff run, but you had a, a whale of a health scare earlier in the season. Yeah. Uh, what, what is walking pneumonia? So, yeah, I, I wish I could get into more science uh, behind it, but in, in, I developed the flu it was just the flu and uh, I remember I actually played it was against London um, and I played the game while feeling like I was sick to my stomach chills aches everything and we actually won the game but after the game I said I am not doing well went home uh, and it was about three days of very, very, very sick, high fevers. And then eventually my parents were going to come and take me home for until I was better because the guys were going to go on the road. 
they they got there and I said, honestly, I don't think I could sit in the car for four hours, take me to the hospital. Uh, I went to the hospital, I had a fever of 105. Um, they thankfully, actually, my billet dad, Steve Gilman, is a uh, neurosurgeon in the uh, UPMC hospital there. So he was able to, uh, to uh, I think he, he, had, he, he played a big role in me getting the intensive care that I needed. But yeah, I, I, the, I guess the fluid just it developed into a walking pneumonia, which I think they, they, they called it mycoplasma or, or whatnot. But it, it, the x-ray was scary. I literally only had one lung. I had a chest tube put in. Uh, I was in the hospital for eight days. Uh, but the three days that I was in the intensive care, they didn't really know what was going on. I didn't have a chest tube put in. I was getting worse and worse. And there was, it was scary. But there, was, there was a time where I was like, okay, like, what's going to happen? My parents were there. They, they didn't leave my side. My mom was always crying. Like it got scary, but I never actually thought I was going to die. However, when I told my doctor afterwards the, the story and everything, he goes, oh my God, you almost died. Then I didn't realize the whole time that I was in bed, all I thought was recovering, getting better and coming back and winning a championship. And I think that manifestation really allowed me to get better Within, as soon as I got out of the hospital, it was two weeks. I was twice, twice a day in the gym. I was eating a lot more food. I lost over 20, 30 pounds when I was in the hospital. So getting that back was tough. But um, uh, Andrew Coop, who was our, our strength and conditioning coach, he would stay with me when we got back off the, uh, after road trips. He'd be um, with me at 1, 2 in the morning working out because I said I need to get back. And I remember the first game was against Barry. And we, we won like seven, four, but the goals that I let in were bad. And I just like, I, I don't feel like myself. It wasn't until my fourth game that we played Windsor. And I felt like I finally got my feet under myself, but all along the way with those games that I was having uh, and I wasn't doing well, and I was down on myself. You know, our general manager, Dave Brown was coming up to me and he goes, don't worry. You got it. We believe in you. We trust in you. It'll come back. And, you know, like I said, it was about, two, three weeks until I was able to really get back and play, but it was scary. It was scary at the time. Thankfully uh, I overcame it, but yeah, it's, it's crazy to look back on. It's scary to listen to Troy. And I'm, I'm thinking like, you're still a young man, but at, at 19, you go through this. And now even as, as somebody who's just 24 years old, does it change your perspective on life? Has it, did it change anything for you? I think more so now when I look back, it does. At the time, being young, I didn't really realize how serious the condition was because I felt I'm 19, I'm healthy, I'm not going to die. That's what that was my. I never thought about it like that, but now looking back and see and understanding how serious the condition I I had, um, yeah, it, it definitely puts it in perspective, and it really um, I think outlined kind of my mentality moving forward. As now I've gotten older, to maintain the health shape and maintain healthy habits and, and the shape that I'm in because. Like I said, my doctor basically said, if you weren't in the shape you were in, if you were overweight at 19 or whatnot, you wouldn't have made it. So that put things in perspective for sure uh, in terms of health. And I've kind of tried to, especially during the, the last pandemic, like the last couple of years during the pandemic, I'm, you know, like I tried to stress to my family and everything, stay healthy. You know, it's, 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 a, you know, it could be survival of the fittest and, so that's kind of the mentality that it, it definitely did alter my, my perception for sure. So you battle back, you get back on the ice and the team, it's almost as I, as I realized this almost five years ago to the day that we're recording this, uh, that you notched 
the 50th win to set the CHL record. What happened after the win when the Erie Otters had this new CHL record? Uh, I, you know, it's I mean, five years. I do remember being ecstatic. Like I was thrilled. Again, I came from a team that we didn't get 15 wins. So it was something that when we got 50, I was screaming after the game. I had my hands up. I, I may have been the most excited, but at the end of the day, it was just, it was just one step closer to where we were headed. Um, but it was cool. It was definitely cool to be a part of. Yeah. Okay. So where you were headed was obviously that OHL championship, the Memorial cup appearance second round though, that year. And we've talked about Mitch Marner already and the London Knights already, but how nervous were you? I mean, th- that go seven games, you have to win game seven against the mighty, mighty London Knights to advance. Yeah, it was my first playoff experience too in the OHL being my fourth year. So it was, uh, it was, it was tough. I'd say that the pressure was definitely on me, especially when the trade deadline, back it up a bit, the trade deadline was approaching and I had Dave Brown come up to me and say, can you, do you think you can do it? Do you think you can be the guy? And I said, I'd be honored to. And so they had that confidence in me. And when the playoffs came, obviously, uh, I'd say I struggled. I struggled at the start. The pressure was definitely on. And uh, the guys, honestly, the, the team that we had was was phenomenal that it allowed me to, you know, I may have, I may have not played my best, but the team was able to, to make up for it. So that was fortunate. But these the game seven against uh, London, I believe I actually got pulled. Now, something that, and someone that doesn't get enough credit during our time there, and you don't hear the name enough, is Joseph Murdaka, uh, our other goalie. When I was sick, even, he came in and won 12 straight. Now, the previous record was 13, and that was for me at the start of the year, and I was rooting him on because I wanted him to do it. But he doesn't get enough recognition. Uh, Murdaka, Joe Murdaka, he was awesome to have, and he stepped in and he helped us win that game seven. So, Kudos to him, but yeah, he came when, uh, when the pressure was on me and I couldn't perform. He was there, so it was awesome. Did it feel like after that second round series versus London that you had kind of reached the summit? I know you still have two series to go to win the OHL championship, but there's just something about those big series, those seven game battles. Yeah, we knew that we had it in uh, for us. I knew we could. The London, the London was definitely a uh, a. a big test for us. And we knew that if we could overcome that, that, you know, I feel like we could get the ball rolling and, uh, and nothing would really stop us. And facing an Owen sound team, then they had a phenomenal team too that year. Um, and they were tough to play. They had, I, I feel like um, the matchup, the matchup was, it was really good. They were, we always had very, very fun games against them. But um, again, Murdaka, I believe started the first game of the series um, I think we may have lost and then they went back to me. And then from that point on, um, we kind of rolled. We, I think we won game six of that series. Uh, but that London, like, again, like I said, that London was the big test. Uh, and I feel like once we, once we won that, the guys were just, we were, we were so confident in our ability that nothing was going to stand in our way. A bit of an aside, but when you mention Owen Sound, I think about, traditionally what they tend to do when they play the Erie Otters is go down and play back-to-back games on a weekend to save one of the trips later on. As an Otter, what was the travel schedule like compared to what it was like as a Sudbury Wolf? You know, the biggest difference was obviously the border. Um, but again, the 
I went from four hours north from my home to four hours south. And we did, the, I guess, the divisional play. We always had to cross the border, and that always took the most time. So that that was unfortunate. However, it wasn't as bad, I want to say, because we played Mississauga quite a bit, and to get there was still, I think it was less than four hours. Um, Niagara was right there. Flint, Saginaw. So it wasn't, it, they weren't too bad. Sudbury, our closest was North Bay at an hour and a half. And I think the next was either Barry or Sue at three or three and a half hours. So I was used to it. I think that was also nice that I, it wasn't like I was going from a team like Mississauga, you know, with relatively close games to, you know, Sault Ste. Marie. So I was already experienced in that, in that extensive travel that Sudbury had. And, and never mind that, the weather, <laughs> getting back from a road trip at three in the morning in Sudbury was never fun, especially <laughs> when it's a <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the thing that people forget about. I've had some of those when you get back from a, a northern swing, as we'd call it from here in Kitchener, right? We'd go up through North Bay, Sudbury, and Sioux, and you come back home and there's four days of snow on top of your car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was always good. It always made it interesting. And as a rookie in Sudbury, I was always cleaning cars. Like, oh, oh my God, this story. Nick Baptiste was my neighbor. And uh, being a rookie, he, he treated me very well. And I was, I was very happy with, with that because, you know, obviously with, uh, with the experience that he had and, and whatnot. But being his neighbor was interesting because going to school in the morning, I would have to wake up earlier. I cleaned off his car, started his car, warmed it up, and then I'd wait in his car for him. <laughs> so I was a rookie. I was a good rookie. I was a good rookie. But, uh, you know, he appreciated it. And uh, I'll never forget that. My, my parents had to buy me a the thickest jacket possible because eventually I had to start walking to school. And so that, was, that always made it interesting. But, I, I'm yeah. guessing then at least that you did all that work. He was driving you to school. Yeah. Okay. That's – yeah, you're driving. That's something. You did the work and then you get a drive to school. Bit of a yeah, it was there. nice. Man, I think it was, I guess it was, it would have been his second year. He had a, he just got a new BMW too. So I didn't mind. I didn't mind. Yeah, you're rolling in style then. Oh yeah, exactly. And you're with Baptiste and yeah, he was a character. He was, he was always a great guy to, to be around. What was he like in the room? Funny. He was funny. He was always, he was always a, uh, I don't know. He, he was, he was hardworking. He was funny. He was just an overall good, good teammate to have, you know, he was someone that you kind of would admire. And again, all the guys liked him and, and he could, he'd always be able to crack a joke, but when it was time to be serious, he was serious. And, you know, and what a phenomenal player too. How did you uh, pass time on the bus with some of those longer trips? What was your routine or ritual? Um, if I, I, I was never a guy that could take naps. So I was never the guy sleeping. If there was a movie on, there's a movie, but honestly, uh, listening to music or just kind of hanging out with the guys, you know, playing cards is always a classic. Um, you know, especially with the longer road trips, if we didn't have a game, we could kind of, you know, joke around and stuff. We do some, you know, rookie idol where the rookies would go up to the front and start singing and stuff like that. So we, we tried to pass the time as best as we could. Um, and depending on how the games went off, obviously played a factor in Sudbury. We didn't watch too many movies after, but, uh, there was the opposite in Erie, So it made up for it. What about game day for you? I I've often, uh, kind of joked as a broadcaster that you don't bother talking to goalies on game day. And I, I don't want to get in anybody's space, but I know there tend to be some routines that are set and you have to go through them before a game. Yeah, I was never, I tried not to be superstitious. 
I think that was something that was very important for me because I was at a point because when I got to Sudbury and I saw how Palazis was, he was, he was very particular with the way his gameplay, his game, his pregame prep was, you know, he followed the certain routine and it would not change. And so when I kind of adapted to that, especially my second year, when I started playing more, um, there'd be some times where I would do my routine and then I would forget something and I would be like, Oh no, I forgot that. And that was a big part, part of my game prep. And then I would almost try and it almost psyched me out a bit. So I tried to step away from that. When I got to Erie, my pregame routine was very relaxed. Uh, I tried to joke around with the guys a little bit when we play, you know, sewer ball. And, and then when it got to about, you know, 30 minutes before game time, headphones would go on and then I'd start my visualizing and my actual, you know, hand-eye prep and, and stuff like that. But I was never a goalie that was overly superstitious. I had my, I had my things. I'd go right, right skate first before left, you know, like a lot of people, but I was not too bad. I wasn't like some or, Oh my God, I played with one goalie now. Uh, Sam, was it Sam Tanget? He, there was a way that if you positioned your cup, he had to position his cup a certain way. Uh, and if you didn't, it was nuts. Like, like little things like that. And I'm like, I, how do you, how do you even perform? I think I must drive you insane. Never mind that. It's so taxing for every game to do one after another. So I tried to stay away from that. We recently had Corey Pecker on this podcast who helped bring the first OHL championship to Erie. You were obviously a part of that next OHL championship. What did it mean to the city when you were able to capture that title? Oh, it was, it was awesome. You know, for one, the city is, the fans are awesome. They're, they're, they're incredible. They're loud, they're passionate. Um, And just to kind of bring that back was, was special for, for, for them. I mean, they've been waiting now since 2002, right? And never mind that. They had McDavid, Fox, and Brown at one point, and they had phenomenal teams. But there was always seemed to be that, you know, that other team that just was able to get the job done. So they were waiting, I felt, for for at least three years where they were, the anticipation was really high. So when I got there, you know, again, anticipation maybe wasn't as high until towards the end of the year, and it was I was happy that we were able to, you know, to win that for them. And, you know, it showed the, the fans were, their fans were awesome and they were with us all along the way. So from the OHL championship, obviously to the Memorial cup and, and in fact, right to the, the final itself, before we talk specifically about the game, kind of in general, lots of people talk and you would have been experiencing it, but with the host team, and the automatic berth, the Windsor Spitfires were an early exit from the playoffs, and they had like 44 days or something like that between exiting the playoffs and coming back rested and healthy and all. How do you feel about the automatic berth? It's always a controversial topic, you know. At the end of the day, there's always no excuse. You got to get there and you got to perform. I mean, it always helps if you have a little bit more rest and guys can, you know, heal from their injuries, right? So it is a controversial topic, but, um, you know, I, I, no excuses. I know I got, now I play with uh, Hayden McCool and, and, and Jeremiah Addison. So those are two guys that, you know, they're well-deserved it. You know, they came, they had the plan, they knew what they were doing and they outperformed. And, you know, I guess that, that's, that's the way that goes sometimes. I think well, there was another team that did too before. Wasn't it like Shakutami? There was a Shakutami? Uh, team out uh, in Quebec. Yeah, one of the Q teams. You're right. Yeah, You're right. yeah. They're the last host team to do it. And I mean, yeah, like I said, controversial topic. 
for me, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, there's no excuses. You know, we had a phenomenal team and unfortunately Windsor was just better that night. So take us through that game. You're leading after two periods. What's it like in your dressing room up by a goal in the Memorial cup final? Yeah, I was, you know, trying to keep your composure, uh, you know, understanding that when you go out there, we have 20 minutes and they're going to give it their all and we have to, you know, surpass that. So it was, you know, again, we had a lot of, a lot of older guys in the room and a lot of experienced guys in the room uh, with Strom and Fogel and especially Sorelli, like Sorelli yeah. was, was through it. So we did lean on sort of Sorelli quite a bit and to kind of calm us down. He, I remember him kind of, you know, bring us back to earth a bit and understand that we got 20 minutes to play here. Uh, we went out there and, you know, the guys, the guys played phenomenal. It was, I, I, I saw highlights from the game recently and I was like, you know, what? we actually played a pretty structured game pretty well. And they had a lucky, uh, I can't say lucky, but they had a, they had a, a fortunate bounce, uh, you know, that, that led them to go one up and, and uh, they took it. So congrats to them. And, I guess uh, it, it sucks seeing Hayden Cool's tattoo, but what are you going to do? <laughs> what is the tattoo? Is it the Memorial Cup from that year? Yeah, it's the Memorial Cup and then the, the, the date and whatnot. So, you know, again, well-deserved. They had 44 days off to prepare, and they did exactly what you expect the team to do. And they were highly talented. They had Jeremy Bracco and everything. They were, they were a, very, a very good team. And Di Pietro and Nat was a stud. So... Again, they were not a team that we knew to take lightly, and that was never ever a thought. But again, they were they were better that night. Yeah, they they were a great team. There's no doubt about it. And I almost feel bad uh, bringing this up because I know that's probably among the the lower points. But that's in sports. That's how you're measured, right? Wins, losses, results, etc. When you look back on it now, five years later, Troy, what are your reflections of the experience of uh, the Memorial Cup as a whole? Or- yeah. It was it was awesome. It's something I'll I'll never forget the uh, the entire experience, even away from the rink and how they structured the tournament. And, and Windsor as a city was was awesome to be in, but uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and kind of surreal at some points because you know there's a lot of attention on the Memorial Cup. Um, it's something that I'll never forget, and you know I'll cherish that. Just uh, even the when we even when we we lost and we were in a in the hotel as a group, you know, and just being with the guys kind of for like one last hurrah. It was, you know, those are the memories you'll never forget still. So that, that tournament was very well put on. The city of Windsor did a great job and, and Caesars took a lot of my money. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, my man. I'm with you on that one. Damn that place. <laughs> How's life in the CIS? Yeah, it was it was good. So uh, I played uh, my first second year in university uh, with Ryerson there, and uh, you know, I, actually, it, it was an unfortunate start that I don't think a lot of. I mean, they don't have the same media coverage, so a lot of people don't know this. But my very first practice with Ryerson, I got a puck to the throat and uh, fractured my larynx. So I have a permanent crooked Adam's apple now. Uh, I was in the hospital overnight, but uh, yeah, it was that set me back three months. Uh, I couldn't do anything to recover. They said, you can't put any stress. You can't lift any weights. Now you just got to recover pretty much. So it was awful. It was an awful start. Uh, when I got back, I was, you know, third string next to Dupuis and uh, Garrett Forrest. So it was about, again, I've been in the position before where I've had to, you know, adversity, perseverance, and 
and come back. And it was out of my control. I just had to kind of, kind of, you know, nose to the grindstone and work hard. My first game ended up being, uh, I think it was in relief of Dupuis and we ended up winning in overtime. So it was, it was a nice first start, but it wasn't the, the CIS career that I was anticipating. Uh, a lot of things changed along the way, especially with kind of how I perceived my future. I've always wanted to be in business uh, with my dad's being successful in business and, and a huge role model to me and what he was able to achieve. I kind of admired that. And I said, well, you know what? I, I want to be in business. I want to have that knowledge at least. Uh, and I was in the entrepreneurship major there too. So after the second season uh, and battling a couple injuries along the way, COVID hit and they made the, the team made a decision to kind of go with a younger goalie. Uh, and I kind of said, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to commit to going, coming back yet because of the pandemic. Uh, they went one way and I didn't really have much of a say, um, but it kind of, that's kind of really where the end of my hockey career went. It was an unfortunate end because I didn't really get to write my own ending, but uh, uh, the pandemic hit obviously this year they were back and um, I'm, I guess essentially their practice goalie. Now I volunteered because I'm so busy with school and my own business that it kind of, it's just the way it worked out where I contacted them because they lost a goalie to the ECHL and they had a very highly touted team. I said, if you guys need help, I'm here. So that's kind of where I'm at now with CIS. You know, it wasn't the career that I, I hoped for, but at the end of the day, I don't regret a single decision I've made because it's where I am now. I'm very happy. I'm still with you here, but as you can see, I've done a terrible job with my lighting as the light went down on outside. So happening to me too. <laughs> it looks better on your end still. It looks better on yeah. your end. This is going to be a little bit better. Well, but... me up too. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but you have proven, Troy, that there is there is life after hockey. Uh, tell me about yeah. the Deep Clean Golf Club. Yeah, so uh, I was fortunate enough, like I said. I'm in the entrepreneurship major, so it gave me some background on really how to, you know, form a startup and and make it profitable and buy a viable business. So uh, and back in May, I was able to start the Deep Clean Club, and we are a luxury golf services and events company. Uh, we operate as a vendor for golf events where we provide golfers with uh, golf club cleaning, uh, groove sharpening, grip revitalizing, shoe cleaning. Uh, we use ultrasonic technology. It's ultrasonic technology for the listeners. If they don't know, uh, it, what it does, it's, it's an ultrasound machine that uh, creates microscopic bubbles. And when the bubbles hit the surface of the golf club, instead of exploding, they implode. And it creates an energy which gives you the best clean of your life. They use, uh, they use it for jewelry, metal, medical uh, equipment as well. Uh, and I, I had to build a proprietary system in order to hold the clubs uh, for it to work. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to also uh, develop our first ever club care, which is your very own golf club grip and shoe detailing kit. So kind of a one-stop shop for all your golf needs to clean and maintain your clubs. And I've taken that now. We're having a, a fun time with it because, uh, you know, when hockey's over and you retire, you get to swing in the clubs. And that's what I did. But with my resources and background, I was able to, you know, to make a business out of it. So I'm excited for it. I was going to mention uh, golf clubs, not goalie sticks, eh? Golf clubs, not goalie sticks. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny too because when I started back with uh, Ryerson a couple uh, a couple weeks ago, and now just to practice here again, I was digging out my goalie equipment from underneath my stairs and, and finding goalie sticks. And 
you know, I actually went to hockey life and I couldn't believe the new technology they got already. And I was, you know, kind of excited. I was like, oh, maybe I can get some new stuff. But then you see it's $400 and you just, you'll stick to the, you'll stick to the old stuff for now. But yeah, no, I, I chose golf clubs. Yeah. How's your golf game? What's your handicap? It's gotten better. Um, but I mean, I'm sitting at probably an eight handicap now. So when COVID hit, that was really the first time I got into golf. So I, I improved very quickly. My, uh, myself and my buddy, Andrew Court, uh, were very competitive, him and I. I actually played with Andrew when I went to Georgetown. So he, uh, he and I kind of began battling with golf, and that's kind of where the, the, the love for the game kind of started. I wanted something that, you know, I always loved the competition in, in, in sports, especially with hockey and, and competing and trying to do better. And with golf, it's you're always competing against yourself. So it was something that I, I did all religiously when COVID hit. Who coached you in Georgetown? Uh, Greg Walters. Greg Walters, of course. Yeah. He was, have- he was awesome. He was awesome. He was a great guy, great coach, players coach. You wanted to play for him. Like you really wanted to play for him and, and do the best you could. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah. So is is the plan for you, Troy, moving forward to to stay with golf? Obviously, this is something you're just getting into. Have you ever thought of, you know, working your way back into the game at a coaching level, maybe a goalie school, anything like that? I've had my uh, experiences at co- like with coaching uh, t- for two years. I went to Las Vegas for the desert cup where I was a mentor uh, and coach for, for a team. And I liked the experience I did. I, I didn't realize how much I actually knew about the game out of the position of, of goaltending until I did that moving forward. I know my, uh, my good friend, Jake Smith, has started a company called BTL Hockey, where he's uh, looking to develop, uh, to move into the development space as well. And he's uh, talked to me about potentially doing stuff with goaltending. And I do still love the game and I do still have it between the ears. And, and that's something that will never go away. Um, given my time right now, it might not be uh, the most viable thing. But in the future, I could definitely see myself getting back into it. I, I play men's league still and I'm a player in men's league, which is really yeah, and, and I've honestly, last couple of years now that I haven't been a goalie, I've taken up being a player, and I, it's something I wish I did from the start. I love being a player. I think I, I would have been a phenomenal player, and, and I do well. I'm a good skater. I have a good shot. So, yeah, that's, it keeps me entertained for sure. I think after, a lot of goalies. Yeah. After you snipe on someone, do you tell them what they did wrong? Well, what's funny is, uh, and I was talking to another goalie the other day about it, is that being a player now, I it's just you know how to score on a goalie. So there's certain there's certain aspects where I see, I find myself on the ice when I receive the puck, where I kind of know where the goalie will be out of position, and I know where to aim without really looking right off the bat. I know that he might make the mistake of coming off the post too much on his glove hand side. And, getting into too much detail, but I quickly can assess that and know where a goalie might make the mistake and, and, and make that shot. So it's, it's benefited me. So I guess I said, when you have it between the ears, it's something that kind of won't go, which is good. It's funny when you talk about that detail, it's, it's, it's a good thing, Troy, that my, my usual partner, Chris Pope, isn't with me today. Cause he's a former goalie too. And sometimes the conversations he has with other goalies, I just, I, I don't even understand the language you're speaking. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we're, we're, we're an unusual breed, right? As yes, you are. Yeah. Yes, you are. It's funny though. Cause I, honestly, I was like, for a goaltender, I never was a guy that 
was really in tuned with my equipment. Like I know a lot of goalies were very particular and knew the specs down to the centimeter or the flex. And I was never the guy that really understood it. And I just said, this is how I like to play. And I would talk to the CCM reps or whoever, whoever it was. And I'd say, can you make me something that is a little bit like this, that, and they would have to do it all for me. Cause I really wouldn't know. So I was never that guy. There's, there's a lot of goalies out there that are very particular and I wasn't. When you look back on your time in the Ontario Hockey League, what do you, what do you take away from it? What, what great memories were there? What, what is your big takeaway? The people you meet. The, the people you meet is something that my dad has always stressed to me too, is your network. Um, your network is your net worth. And the amount of people that I met from when I was a young 15-year-old, whether it was my billets, to, you know, I remember my second second year, I was very close with the Zulich family uh, in, in Sudbury as well. And these are the connections that you build and, and they last a lifetime. Uh, so I, I, that's one thing from the OHL, whether it's Jim Waters, the owner of Erie, who did a lot for me to the general manager in Sudbury who drafted me. It's these connections you meet, they last a lifetime. And it's really important for the kids to understand that, uh, just because when hockey's done doesn't mean you stop, you know, communicating with these guys. These guys are really important. And, you know, just reaching out to them once in a while, uh, is, it goes a long way. And when you got to know that Zulich family, you came to realize that Dario really does have a wardrobe full of white shirts and blue jeans. <laughs> That's all it ever is. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. He's like the godfather. He's <laughs> I remember, no, I'd go, I'd go over to his place for dinner and, uh, you know, they'd have a, a, a very long table and a big family, right? Italians. And uh, sure enough, he'd be at the head of the table. And I always think of him as the godfather because he's just, he was the man. He was the man. Uh, Dario, Dario and I had a great relationship. And uh, yeah, I was, it was unfortunate that he took over the team when I, the, the year that I uh, got traded. But uh, he, he's, he's a great owner from what I hear. And uh, he's doing good things. Yeah, I've heard uh, so many of the same things. And honestly, every time I see him, it's the same look. The, the jeans and the white dress shirt and, and they've got new arena play. What would you think of that, though? I mean, because we talked earlier about the Sudbury Arena and I like the arenas with character. I guess progress is going to happen, but I'd miss the old barn a little bit. Yeah, I, there's talk, right, about them getting uh, a new spot that's, I heard it was built with like a casino or I heard a lot of stuff that was happening. I actually heard it from my, I heard it from my first year. There's been rumors for years. So whenever it happens, uh, it's going to be sad to see the barn kind of, uh, you know, lay to rest. But at the same time, you know, it's something that maybe the fans could use, you know, they knew a new scenery. Uh, it's something that maybe even an attraction for, for younger players too. Cause you know, there was always issues with, potentially, uh, you know, highly touted players not wanting to come to Sudbury uh, facility-wise. But you know what? I, one thing I could tell them is that they're wrong for that. It's it's never about where you are particularly. It's what you make of it. And Sudbury can give you a lot if you give it, you know, the kind of respect that it deserves. I love that city more than anything. And I visited it last year. I went up just to, just to see it again because I missed – you know, just the scenery and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a historic town for sure. It is. That's a fantastic piece of advice too. Troy, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks a lot for making the time for us to catch Mike, up. It's, it really enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it too. Take care.
Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.